This is the Workin' With series, presented by your host, Hayley Sudbury. Listen in each month to find out who we're working with. Hayley sits down with some of the world's most exciting leaders and entrepreneurs to chat about the companies they love, their definition of success, and the real secret behind it all, their superpower. So I'm sitting here today in the offices of John McFarlane at Canary Wharf. He's the chairman of Barclays. And for me, it's a bit of a blast from the past. I worked at ANZ in early 2000 when John was CEO and a very interesting time in my professional journey. It was the beginning of my career and um, John and his leadership team were huge role models for me. I think particularly because ANZ were real champions of women in leadership and and that was really spearheaded by John. So it's fantastic to be here and uh, great to see you after so many years. A couple of questions today, and I'm really wanting to understand from your, you know, your journey from ANZ to, to what you're you're doing now at, at Barclays, and hoping we can share some of your fantastic insights uh, and learnings along the way with with our listeners. So, when you joined ANZ, you undertook a huge program of cultural transformation. For those listeners not familiar with that journey, could you please talk us through it? The cultural journey had different aspects to it on the different phases of change required. You know, it depends on the situation that you find as to what sort of culture that you need for any particular phase in an organization. So, for example, you know, organizations can go from startup, they can be uh, mature, they can be in a growth mode, or they could have failed and they're in a recovery mode. And it really then depends on that. Now, ANZ. Um, had recovered from a very bad period in the early 90s, but had very flat economic performance. It was the worst performing of the major Australian banks financially. And so the issue was simply about performance and productivity in order to kickstart the shield of value creation. And so it's no surprise that the sort of values that we actually saw through survey in the organization were about profit, cost reduction, shareholder value, decisiveness. But we also had uh, some values that we needed to change, which were you know, bureaucracy, um, short-termism, and so forth. And, and so the, we, we created a program that we knew we're gonna, was going to have three phases to it of which this was the first phase. And so the program was perform, then grow, and then break out, which was to create the company of tomorrow. But we knew we couldn't do the second or third phase at the beginning. We had to deal with perform first. So the the first phase was perform. The second phase was perform and grow. The third phase was perform and grow and break out. So it wasn't... One word, it was actually maintenance of the existing and then building on that towards the, the breakout uh, situation. And so you have to go through those phases. And it was the beginning of the journey to breakout, which was where the people agenda started to emerge because we needed the values to be much more customer, growth, enlightenment, diversity, etc. cetera. Uh, and therefore, uh, with all of these programs, you get what you target, you get what you measure, you get what you reward. 
Um, and so in the first phase, you, you reward economic value creation. In the second phase, you reward growth and economic value creation um, uh, and or market share or, or whatever. Um, and so uh, and the, you keep every year target, measure differences, run a program on the difference, the biggest difference or the most important difference, recalibrate each year, uh, how are we doing? So for example, on the early phase, one of the problems was uh, that the organization was a very closed bureaucratic system. In other words, information was power. You never shared information with other people. Um, and we needed to open that up because we needed communication to rise up the organization and to flow down the organization. Uh, and with closed minds, it, it couldn't happen. And so we ran a program called No Withholds, which is that you, you're not allowed to withhold information from anybody. Um, and we ran it across, I think it was 30 or 40,000 people. We ran it across the whole uh, enterprise. And if you went to a meeting, the program was such that at every meeting, you had to go up to two people in that meeting and tell them something that you didn't tell them before and you should have told them. And that ran for a year. No withholds. And then we opened up the system. So that's just an example of a, a, a value of openness, a reality of closeness, but to get the shift, you need to do something. And then what you do is you run an initiative or a program to shift this to this. And, and that's right. We did lots of those, but we, did, we always had three initiatives running um, at any point in time. So what struck me as different, particularly now as I reflect on sort of CEOs I'm speaking to currently, is you always had such a clear long-term vision what, what length of time did the Perform, Grow and Breakout program actually run for? It ran for six years. Well, the Perform program was first, but the Perform, Grow and Breakout program was three years, uh, 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 six years, because essentially the vision started with a, a very poor reality, which is banks were hated in Australia. It's not a good leading indicator of future success. And so I had to break that apart. And I had to take ANZ away from the pack. And so I, cre I came up with a vision which was slightly soft in concept, but very powerful in reality, which was to create the bank with a human face. The, uh, the human face was external with uh, customers. Uh, it was external with shareholders. It was external with suppliers. It, and it was internal uh, with uh, people in, in the organization, which was that we had to have a much more people-orientated uh, human face of the organization you know, to try and break apart this uh, very sterile, technical results, bottom line orientated vision of the organization which were all about you know, profits. Uh, you needed profit, but, but you also needed you know, uh, customers to... Uh, to have a, a good regard for you because, and so we, we set, there were a number of values that we set. They were really initiatives, but they, the people embraced them as values. The, uh, with the Bank of the Human Face, the, the first um, uh, was uh, uh, to create superior value for shareholders, to have a tangible reason why a customer should deal with us and not, not with somebody else that was not replicable by them. 
uh, to create an environment of trust inside the organization so that people uh, could grow. And the other problem in these situations is that you make profits on one hand and you give them away with the other hand by lack of control or poor risk taking. And so you, you actually had to make sure that you basically had a solid infrastructural control over making sure that whatever profits you did make, you didn't actually give away through bad management. So, so that was essentially the, the, the program initially. Now, once we got into the second phase where we really need to unleash the energy of the people in the organization. That's where we uh, had moved the organization towards a human face, you know, pretty much halfway through that. And uh, we, we then said, uh, I need to tighten up that vision. And we created a new one called a very different bank. I, I was trying to create the organization of the future, you know, not the existing paradigm, very different from any other uh, organization uh, in its nature and in its relationship with the outside world. Uh, our, our vision became holistic. It was about stakeholders as a whole, not just about customers or just about shareholders. Um, and, and therefore, we embraced a total stakeholder model. Um, uh, and, uh, and we needed uh, to do that. We needed to create a, a program that we called Breakout. And it was, the words were chosen deliberately um, uh, because I think words, individual words have resonance and other words don't have resonance. This was break and out. Um, so in other words, we, we had to break the status quo and then take ourselves out into tomorrow. And so it was break out, not break out. And of course, people have different skills, they have different ways of doing things. I'm completely intuitive. Right? I just know the answer. And, and so we had circumstances where, you know, I've had bosses and I've actually had subordinates where, where we have a circumstance and I'll say, well, of course we do that. And they say, well, why is that? And I say, well, just give me a second, I'll work out why that's true. But, but you know, that was it. So it's not rational. <laughs> it's it's, so I remember I had a, I had a boss at City um, and uh, he said, well, we've got this problem. And I said, oh, that's, that's perfectly obvious. You have to do this. Uh, and he said, no, no, no. We can't just jump to the conclusion. We have to work it through. So what's the problem? Where do we want to end up? And what are the options? And how, let's evaluate. And so we came up with three options. Let's evaluate each of the options and then look at the strengths and weakness of each option. And we went through that and then ended up with this conclusion. I said, yeah, that's exactly what I told you at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, it, and, and, and it's just an instinctive thing. I just happen to know. You know, at any point in time, what phase we're in, what the priorities are, you know, and uh, uh, and therefore what we need to do, um, and uh, and and therefore, so I'm probably tapping into something that I just don't realise what I'm tapping into, um, because some some of it's new, uh, but it's just instinctive. I just happen to know. So, for example, at any, I, I've always worked on three priorities. What was interesting, I found, is that people found it very difficult to write three priorities that were output-based. They wrote their job description. This is what I'm responsible for. I said, that's not what I asked you. I asked you for three things that you will achieve, not three things that you'll go about doing. Um, and so I had to write them in the end. 
you know, so basically they drafted them and then I edited them. And I eventually edited the top 100 to make sure that everybody in the top 100 had three priorities beyond the numbers that were the, what they needed to achieve in their job. Um, from from what what I knew of their their role, uh, and and then we ran that system, and and of course we said to people, whatever you do, you can't come back and tell me you haven't met the three priorities. You can if you've done ten other things brilliantly, it's just not relevant. We've got, and so we had a traffic light system, red, amber, green. We tracked uh, how they were doing on the three priorities. We had a dashboard on the three priorities, and that meant that the organisation was always focused on the main game and was always shooting through uh, towards greater things. So, for example, if you're a confident person, and if you've always been successful, um, then you always look to grow and take on bigger things. Uh, in that environment, you're able to take on a vision that you know with very high confidence or certainty that you're going to achieve, but you might not even know how you're going to do it. And you're quite comfortable with the fact that the reality around you is what you've got. And this vision is out there beyond what you know how to do. But you're not worried because you work it out. And you've got to choose whether your vision is true, the real you, or whether the reality is the real you. If you choose the reality is the real you, you'll set a vision pretty close to your reality. Because uh, you know, you'll want to know how to achieve it. Whereas if the vision is the real you, I, I just know that's what we're going to be and lock on and hold that rigid, the challenge becomes shifting the reality. And the way you do that is you, you have a vague idea what the program is. You don't have a certain idea of what it is, but you know roughly how you're going to go about it. But you know you need to work it out at some point in time and put in the building blocks necessary. And basically what happens is this cognitive dissonance of the fact that this is real, but I see this all the time, you shape this up by finding your brain opens up to opportunities that, that, that go towards this and get rid of this. And they also open up to threats that stop you doing, saying, well, okay, I need to avoid that, that happening. A good example is this. In the morning... You get up and you uh, you actually were going to have breakfast and the telephone rings. You answer the telephone. You miss breakfast. You so you walk to work down the street. Uh, and of course, uh, you know if you say to somebody who who uh, walked to work, you know, um, did did you press the button on the traffic light to for the green man to come up and so for the uh, well, I, I don't know. I just. I just walked to work or, or I just drove to work. You know, when, when you drove to work, was the first thing you did put your hand on the steering wheel or, or was it on the gear shift? Well, well actually, uh, I just drove to work. Because it's, you're on automatic pilot, basically, uh, you know. Um, and, and so you don't notice things because you know, everything's calm. You're, 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 you're getting to work safely. That's your mission. And, and, and you don't think about it. You just know... Now, imagine that you go through lunch and you forget to have your lunch. Um, you know, uh, and, and then you, you're hungry by the side. So you go home in the evening and you walk down exactly the same street. What do you see? You see restaurants everywhere. There's one. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that was there. <laughs> ah, there's one. Why? Because your brain's saying to you, your subconscious is saying to you, you need to get some food into you 
And so the opportunity is there. There's a restaurant. Now go in there and, and do it. And the same is true of threats, uh, is that the brain opens up to a threat that's going to stop you achieving what it is you want to achieve, you know, uh, and, and it will uh, have you avoid it. And, and so the, the, the concept of having a vision, you know, which is basically an idea that you really believe in, and, you, and, the, and the sharper you can paint that, with the most vibrant colors, locks it down to, you know, a, a more compelling uh, proposition. Uh, and then what you need is the maximum energy to force the reality to change as quickly as possible towards the, the vision. And you need to track where you are at all points in time so that you, you always know the reality at any point in time. But that reality evo evolves. What you also find is people who are not skilled at this is that they will realize and become uncomfortable about the gulf between the vision and the reality. And it softens their belief in the vision. And they bring the vision closer to reality and have a new vision that's easier to achieve. And so great leaders do the first, but people who are not great leaders or who are not comfortable with taking risks, because you're taking risks, you're stepping into the unknown, actually have goals that are much closer to reality. And I, I really do feel that ANZ set me up very well to be an entrepreneur because you do need great vision and yeah. you don't know how you're going to get there. And there was fantastic support around feeling that you could and you could jump into those spaces and, and deal with ambiguity, essentially. So part of the breakout strategy placed a huge emphasis on increasing the number of women in leadership positions. What, if any, was the backlash you experienced from fellow employees, both men and women? We did a, a survey of whether men appoint men, whether men appoint men and women, or women appoint women, or women appoint men and women. So we did a survey over quite a long period of time with the hypothesis that men are completely tribal, that they appoint men from inside their department, and don't appoint people from outside the department and don't appoint women. That was the hypothesis that we were trying to break apart. And the hypothesis were, were women were systematic in recruiting women. That was the hypothesis. Uh, we weren't trying to prove that. We'd rather it wasn't true. But that was our hypothesis. With the men, it was 96-6. Men from inside the department to six from men and women from outside the department. Okay. or men and women, women anyway, but men outside the department. And with women, it was about 60-40, or two-thirds of one-third. So in other words, they, on balance, appointed women, um, uh, uh, but, uh, but, but still there was a, an inherent bias there. So, so if you say, well, how would you solve that problem? We had to break that apart. And organizations are really good at gaming any system you put in, okay? So, so the, the first thing I said, right, we're having a target. Uh, we want 25% of women in the top group by this date. Um, and of course, society frowned on that, you know, but I knew it was the only way we were going to get anything changed because... Um, uh, and, and also, and if, you, if you don't have, by the way, uh, you fail. You know, and fail means you don't do this anymore, right? So, you know, you, you need to understand, you know, I'm not messing around with this, okay? Now, what was interesting about the men and women conversations, we had to re-educate people on how men and women talked. 
There's a, wo a woman called Barbara Tannen who wrote a, a book called Talking Nine to Five. It was a McKinsey book. Um, and we were using McKinsey uh, for the breakout program. And, uh, and, and she uh, uh, said that men and women have completely different conversation styles. So men are very directive. You know, I want you to do this, 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 and this. And women say, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? You know, I, I, my, uh, I, my preference is normally go in this direction, but, you know, I'd be interested in your view. You know, so very different conversation. Men saw that as weak and decisive. Um, and, and therefore, we had to actually educate the men in the organization about how women actually speak. Uh, and we ran the program uh, on, on this in order to actually have uh, a very different style of, uh, of conversation. And you know, the other thing was that on the advertised jobs, if a man um, uh, wanted to get that job, you get men applying for a job that they are completely unskilled for. And you had women that were perfectly skilled and way beyond questioning whether they had 100% of the requirements. And so, so we had this psychological barrier where the women wouldn't apply because they didn't think they were ready. Whereas the men would apply when they were miles from being ready. But we had a lot of teething troubles getting these programs up, but you just had to be a bit smarter than the system. That was a fantastic answer, very deep, and something that I lived and breathed as well, so very consistent with, with my experience. If we spoke to your colleagues about your leadership style, how would they describe it? Well, um, it's different now in a sense uh, because, I, you know, I'm not executive. But, but in general... Um, uh, I'm very uh, goal-orientated. You know, I start at the end and work backwards. Um, uh, I get a clear sense of the problem and what needs to be changed. And, have a, and, and I, I, I come up with the, pri the priorities at any stage as to what we need to do to shift it. And therefore, that's the agenda. Uh, and, and, and therefore, everything is on that agenda. Um, the, but the, um, I... I'm, I'm, I don't tell people what to do. What I do is put better people than me in their job. I mean, I can do my job better than they can do it. Otherwise, I shouldn't be in it. And they can do their job better than I can do it, and that's fine. We've now got the best person doing each job. They need a degree of freedom to do it, but they need the direction. And, and therefore, their direction, whatever they want to do, has got to be consistent with where, with where I want to take the firm. Now, I'm quite happy for us all to discuss where we take the firm. You know, and therefore there's a moment where you open up and it's brainstorm and anything goes. But then you have to close that down to say, right, we need agreement. What is your superpower? It's having a clear sense of what's what at any, any point in time. It's simply that. I also am very comfortable with uncertainty. Uh, it, it just doesn't, doesn't bother me. And I'm also comfortable with having truly outstanding people uh, who are very challenging working with me because it, it doesn't make your life easy, but it actually is necessary to do that. And you need to give them immense amounts of freedom. You left ANZ in 2007 and the cultural landscape of the finance sector has changed and is changing. What are the major cultural challenges facing leadership over the next few years? Well, I think the 
the millennials and the digital economy is both a, an enormous opportunity and a challenge. Um, I also think the aging of the population uh, in mature economies um, or maturing economies, and it's also true in China, of course, uh, um, is a tremendous challenge for the, these countries, but also for the, the organizations. Um, uh, and, and therefore, you know, the product set, how you distribute products to clients, how they access their services, you know, all needs to change. Um, uh, and, and therefore, we need to embrace that that change, whilst at the same time recognising that we need to create a facility for the more vulnerable aged in society to be able to deal with us in a more traditional way. We can try and educate them towards that, that which we do. We, we've got a system called Digital Eagles where we educate people to use um, iPhone, iPad technology or, or, or laptop technology. Uh, but at the same time, we recognise that some people are just not going to do that and so on. So you, you, have, you, you have these challenges. But you mentioned Inside Out. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I regard as the best self-help book in the world. Um, and the first chapter is called Inside Out. And, uh, but that's a different concept to, it's not, the, it's not a good understanding of the external reality. It's whatever you want to be individually on the outside, you must first be inside. If you want to be respected, you, you must respect others. Uh, and so forth. So another. So uh, um, uh, you know, if if if, um, if 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 you want people to care about you, you must be caring, uh, and so forth. So so I do think inside out, as a philosophy, has two aspects to it. One is whatever it is you want to be on the outside or to be recognised as such, you must first be that inside. You know, if you want to, you know, be seen as innovative, you must innovate. <laughs> um, and, and so, uh, um, if, if if you want to be seen um, um, uh, as uh, as a leader, you must take the actions necessary that leaders do to create an environment where people can grow, and so forth. So, so this inside out works, but outside in also works. You have to good, you have to have a good understanding of what's happening outside, and therefore make sure that the inside is shaping up. Uh, in line with it and ideally being ahead of it. You've repeatedly joined the boards of companies at particularly challenging times. Two weeks prior to the bailout of RBS and at Barclays to rebuild relationships with stakeholders and shareholders. What are the major differences in how you enact change, say, as a chairman and board member or as a CEO? I say to people who ask me advice, you know, what should I do? I say, well, get a bit of paper and draw a line down the middle and draw a line across the middle and put a plus here and a minus here. Right, on the top left, write, what are you truly gifted at better than anybody you know? And write that down. Not good, unusual. Put it in there. On the right-hand side, what are you completely useless at? Right, hopeless. Put that there. At the bottom... What do you love doing and are passionate about? You you know, if, if offered, you would do more of it, right? What do you hate doing? Absolutely hate. Don't want to go anywhere near it, right? These are your strengths. And there's your momentum. Is This is what you're truly gifted at and that you're passionate about. So imagine you're doing something that you're gifted at and you're passionate about. How well are you going to do it? Well, how well are you going to study something because you need it 
to get a grade to do something completely different. You're not passionate about it. You're no good at it. <laughs> and therefore, you'll get a reasonable result, but not great, right? But you've got a great teacher or a great subject, and you're passionate about it, you'll get an A. It's dead simple, right? Now, if you then appoint people, make sure you're leveraging the, what they're brilliant at and what they're passionate about doing. And I say to people, if you're not in a job that's leveraging your strengths, or in a job that you're passionate about, or your boss is a terrible leader, you can't change them, but you can change your job. Go and get another one that, that, that you're really good at and you're passionate about. You know, but, but don't try and keep persevering with this, because it's not going to work. You hate it, right? So it's not, it's, it's not going to work. So I do think it's about recognising what our situation needs and therefore making sure you align the strengths of the individuals you put towards that and then just allow them to leverage their strengths. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. I saw, uh, I, uh, I, I was sitting in, uh, when I was executive chairman, I was sitting in, a, in my other office in the West End, which I hate, it's a horrible building. But anyway, I didn't go there. But, um, uh, and they, I was on a conference call that was finishing and the head of audit was, was, was uh, my next appointment. And um, uh, and I walked down. She had a pile of uh, uh, papers like this in folders. And I said, "What are those?" And and she said, "Oh, they're uh, half yearly interim appraisals." I said, "What what is that?" <laughs> That's a, show me. So seven pages or five. I can't remember. So and so you have to write five pages for how many do you have to do? Well, I'm doing seventeen. Right. Uh, okay. So you're writing. 17 appraisals every half year and every full year. How long does that take you? Um, it's about two weeks. Are you telling me that nobody's auditing this company over the next two weeks and you're writing interim appraisals? Stop it, right? Why? Because they were focusing on the weaknesses. What are, the, what, what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What do they need to change, right? That's not why they're employed. They're employed because they're brilliant at these things they're doing. And how can we do more of that? And the focus of these things is completely wrong. Well, John, it has been hugely inspirational to speak to you this afternoon. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch. You've been listening to the Workin' With podcast series. You can find us on iTunes and at workinwith.com. That's W-E-R-K-I-N with.com. Dot